0: Good evening. Welcome to Crosspoint's Midweek Fellowship. I'm going to read to you from 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Pray with me. Father, you are holy, and you are perfect, and you are just. Thank you for your blessings and for this night to come together and worship you. I pray that your spirit be on Brad as he comes up and teaches, and on us as we listen and observe your word. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.
1: Thank you, Stephen. Come on in. And you know what? I made a mistake tonight and forgot to put out the notes, but there are some out there a little bit. And Stephen, uh, I mean, sorry, Adam Bell went to go make copies. So how many of you do not have notes? Oh, gosh. Good job, Brad. Way to go. Excellent. Um, Exercising my spiritual gift of forgetfulness. Um, You will really be helped by the notes. So we're going to kind of get started. And then, Will, could you go back and maybe help Adam? Because it needs to be front and back, uh, two-sided copies. And I don't know if he knows the intricacies of the copy machine. (laughs) Yeah, glossy. (laughs) Glossy, yeah, please, thanks. Most expensive paper we got, Kristen, is going back to help. Um, So here's what we're going to do. We will get started. And then when Kristen rescues Will and Adam from the copy machine... um, We'll have the copies in. When I see them come in, we'll just kind of pause for a second, and then we'll pass out the notes. I'm sorry about that. That's that's all my fault. All right. Well, um, for the three or four of you that have the notes, um, let me just, by way of review, um, we have been talking about the Holy Spirit through uh, the, these past six weeks. This is our last uh, gathering for this particular block of the Midweek Fellowship. We'll take a break, and then uh, we will start... Another series or topic in the fall, probably starting in late September. Um, so we're not, we've got two or three things kind of rattling around as far as what we're going to do, and we'll let you know about that in, in plenty of time. Um, but for tonight, we're wrapping up this series through the, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, or what is commonly called, Logan, Logan referred to this the other day, as pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit. Pneuma being a Greek word for spirit, the study of the Holy Spirit. And we've looked at the life of the Spirit in the church and the Old Testament uh, working of the Spirit. Logan did a wonderful job. All of this is on the internet. We looked at the baptism of the Holy Spirit a couple weeks ago, and last week and this week, we're going to zero in on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And tonight, I want us to really dive down into 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and nine particular spiritual gifts that... Um, are really the ones that people kind of have a lot of questions about and wonder about and uh, seem to be the point of Paul's lengthy uh, instruction to the Corinthian church. So you can go ahead and open a bi- your Bible if you have one to First Corinthians chapter 12. We'll be there in just a second. But before we do that, let me just by way of summary, by way of review, um, catch us up to where we are tonight to give us a little context. So two weeks ago, we talked about Uh, the, The biblical idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and there are basically two major views about what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. One view is, and this would be the traditional Pentecostal view, is that the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and that phrase, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, is mentioned about seven times in the New Testament, primarily in the Gospels. And then there's Will with some notes, so raise your hands up high. And Will, you only got a few, okay. (laughs) All right, well, six, yeah, I'm sorry, guys, this was... uh... Pretty weak job on my part. Um, the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is mentioned about seven times in the New Testament, and then um, uh, it, it's mentioned, it's, it's kind of referred to in the book of Acts. So, one view, the Pentecostal view, is the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a second and subsequent one time experience of grace after salvation. And the majority of Pentecostals would say, that, uh, and by the way, when we say Pentecostals, I don't mean that in any way like a pejorative term. These are Christians we are brothers and sisters, and some of you may be Pentecostals, so just, this is just a particular sliver of the broad body of Christ that has a theological perspective on this issue. Uh, Pentecostals would believe that this second experience called the baptism of the Holy Spirit, Robert Ward with more notes. All right, hand up if you need. There's a bunch of them, Robert. I know, it's my fault. Somebody was, somebody was printing bulletins, and it kind of threw my mojo off a little bit. So um, I'm sort of, sort of blame-shifting a little bit right now. Yeah, um, hands up. Keep your hands up. Okay. So, um, all right, let me just pause while you guys get that going. I'm sorry. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit by Pentecostals believed that this second work of grace is evidenced by speaking in tongues, okay? Now, we talked about some of the uh, downsides to that. It potentially creates kind of a two classes of Christianity, those that have and those that do not. Um, I think that that's that's a particularly unhealthy, unintended aspect of that culture. Then there's the second view. Um, Robert, we got some more folks up in the front here, front right section. The second view is that the baptism of the Holy Spirit occurs at conversion. You can put your hands down. It looks like they're going to resupply. I'm sorry. Um, and that, I believe, is what the Bible teaches in First Corinthians chapter 12, that, uh, that every Christian upon salvation is baptized into the body. Uh, and then thereby are encouraged by Paul, exhorted by Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 to continually be filled with the Holy Spirit. So we talked about that. I would hold that, and I think the pastors here would hold, that would be the stance of our church, although certainly Christians would disagree with this, and you're free to disagree with this. Uh, but I think that the biblical perspe- perspective on the baptism of the Holy Spirit is at conversion. Okay. Then, what we talked about last week, a sort of overarching view of the gifts is, um, is the spiritual gifts that are mentioned in the Bible. And we looked at a whole broad li- list, about five, four or five different places in the Bible where spiritual gifts are mentioned. These are the New Testament passages, 1 Corinthians 12 and two places, 28, and then 8 through 10. Ephesians 4, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 7. Mention about 21 or 22 different spiritual gifts And some of them are sort of mentioned more than once, but the point that we made last week is that these are not exhaustive lists by any stretch of the imagination the grammar and the language and the context of what Paul is writing and 1 Peter uh, is writing as well is not meant to be that these are exhaustive. So um, if you feel like God has gifted you in some way and it's not mentioned here, don't be discouraged. There are many, many gifts that God gives his people. And the other thing uh, that we looked at last week and really spent some time in is that there are basically two different views about the Uh, continuation of the relevancy of gifts today. There are those that believe that spiritual gifts have ceased and that not all of the spiritual gifts, but many of the spiritual gifts have ceased. And then there are those that would believe that the spiritual gifts have continued. So now if you do not have a sheet, you can raise your hand again because Robert's coming back with some more. And it looks like we may be able to knock out all of the have-nots. They've received the baptism of the notes. And so they... They have, not <laughs> bad joke. Okay, so, um, so then there are people that believe that the gifts have continued, most Pentecostals, most Charismatics. And we looked at arguments last week, really the theological arguments, not just the church culture arguments, but the theological arguments as to why some people believe the gifts have ceased and why some Christians believed that all of the gifts continue. And here's what we settled on last week is that um, all Christians must, I think, uh, 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 believe that at least one of the spiritual gifts has ceased, and that is the spiritual gift or office of apostle. Um, I think clearly that has ceased. There are no apostles anymore. They're all dead, and they had a special one-time authority to be the writers of the New Testament. Now, certainly there are some Christians who think that that office exists today, but I think that they are... Uh, they're very, very wrong. And generally, if they believe that, they probably believe other things that make them very, um, very, have a very poor understanding of the Bible. Um, and so uh, we looked at the reasons why. And here's what we settled on last week is that the arguments on either side for cessationism and continuationism are not airtight. There are very, very respected Christians, all of them in the conservative, reformed stream of the church that believe both kind of both sides. And so we we want to encourage uh, one another to have a little bit of humility as we think about our different views on this. Okay. So then let's settle down on 1 Corinthians 12 verses 8 through 10 and look at the nine spiritual gifts that Paul mentions in the New Testament are in the Corinthian church that he's wanting to give Order and regulation and instruction in. And these are the nine gifts that often get asked about. So let me just read 1 Corinthians 12, verses 8 through 10, and then we'll work our way back through it. Paul says that for to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. Okay, so Paul mentions nine spiritual gifts there. Again, that is not an exhaust, it's not meant to be an exhaustive list. Paul is just mentioning what is functioning in the Corinthian church at that time, and he's wanting to give instruction as to how these spiritual gifts should be implemented in the church. And then in chapter 14 he really gets into zeroing down on two gifts in particular: prophecy and tongues, and how they should function in the church. So let's look at what these gifts are. Um, and I've got kind of a, a couple of bullet points behind each one. And we'll uh, we'll stop after this and answer any questions. And then um, I want us to spend. I want to answer a few questions for you, and then I want us to spend a good amount of time for you to have the opportunity to ask questions. So, what is word? Of, what is a word of wisdom? What is that gift? Paul is likely linking this gift to the problem that he brought up in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2, where in the name of wisdom, you got to think about what the Corinthian culture, the city of Corinth was very heavily influenced by Greek culture and this Greek idea of wisdom. Uh, in fact, Sophia is the Greek word. So if you are named Sophia or you know somebody named Sophia, that means wisdom And it was a a kind of human-centered, esoteric, uh, Gnostic kind of wisdom that was very ambiguous and nebulous and, and not centered on God. And Paul was countering the wisdom of the Corinthians with the wisdom of God. And remember, I'm sure many of you know the passage in 1 Corinthians 1 where it talks about how the foolishness of God uh, is wiser than the wisdom of men and how he, he, the, he, he really uh, mocks the wisdom of, of man through even uh, the gospel and the foolishness of God. And so Paul is countering that idea in that the Corinthians, by their so-called human wisdom, were rejecting the plain wisdom of the gospel. Wisdom in this sense is not a mysterious or special understanding of mystical things. So don't think, um, you know, kind of some strange, spooky, fog machine kind of, you know, I know what you did last summer, just and we're, you know, I'm going to now reveal it to everybody. I mean, it's not, it's not that spooky. It's very practical, uh, Christ-centered, gospel-centered wisdom. It more likely refers to the recognition of, Uh, that the message of Christ crucified is God's true wisdom and is focused on clarifying the truth and wisdom of the gospel. So it's practical, it's tangible, it's accessible, and it zeroes in on the message of Christ. Not strange, prophetic, um, you know, secondary issues. It's zeroing in on the gospel. Word of knowledge, which is mentioned right after that, is... Uh, very similar. In fact, uh, theologians through the centuries have struggled to really differentiate uh, the the nuances between a word of wisdom and a word of knowledge, and they're they're probably a parallel in many ways. So again, in context, Paul is fighting against This culture in the Corinthian church of pride and knowledge. So they were very intelligent, educated people. So in 1 Corinthians 8 verses 1 through 3, he's talking about how knowledge puffs up. And he's saying, no, the the type of wisdom and knowledge that the Holy Spirit gives is humble and practical and doesn't puff up, but it zeroes in on helping to make the meaning of God's word and the gospel clearer to the church. And so I, I've been in church circles where people claim to have uh, a word of wisdom or knowledge. In fact, Jennifer and I, years ago were at a church, at a church in Florida, and this uh, speaker um, well, uh, yeah, this speaker came and, and he picked Jennifer out in the crowd. He was speaking, and just kind of stopped. And zeroed in on her and said, I've got a word of knowledge for you, sister. And he just unraveled this, like, you know, the whole stuff that he thought was true about her past, which was absolutely, I mean, he was talking to her about all this abuse she went through. And I, you know, I perceive in you the spirit of whatever. And this, I've got a word of knowledge for you. And the whole time, Jennifer's just going, uh-uh. <laughs> because he was like, well, no, but it did not deter the prophet, <laughs> the false prophet. And he was just going after it. And, and in some of the circles that I've been in, that's what they think of this word of wisdom or knowledge as this strange, kind of spooky, uh, kind of I can read your mail type of a deal. Now, it's not that God can't do that. I mean, we all know situations where maybe somebody's preaching or speaking, and we know that God is reading our mail, right? And, and he's speaking through somebody. And I'm not saying that God does not sometimes give somebody a special revelation to just confront somebody in their sin or whatever. But what is in view here is a much more regular, practical, certainly powerful but more ordinary operation of wisdom and knowledge that zeroes in on clarifying the meaning of Scripture in the life of the church. So I think that's a pretty broad category of what these these gifts may look like. And that's really the only detail we have. These are not mentioned anywhere else, these two particular gifts in the Scripture. Faith. Um, I think what Paul has in mind here is likely not saving faith. I think it's clearly not saving faith. Um, which he gives to those as, uh, as in, in salvation, but is a special faith to move mountains. So in First Corinthians, chapter thirteen, verse two, it says, "If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but not love, I am nothing." And so I think what's going on here is, and again, it's not um, some mystical, superstitious, strange, but it is it is a very practical but powerful. Gift of faith that God gives people in the church to believe Him to be the means by which God works and acts on the behalf of His people. And again, I want us to see this gift as something that I think should be sort of prevalent in the church. Right when maybe somebody is going through a difficult time, or is is is, uh, or maybe there's something that needs to you know happen in a church, and there are people that God would give a particular. Dose or gift or measure of faith to be the means by which they would pray and believe and be used by God powerfully to bring about some great work or, or movement forward um, for the work of the gospel in that particular community of faith or church. Gordon Fee, a New Testament scholar who wrote a really landmark uh, commentary on First Corinthians. Uh, the whole book of 1 Corinthians says it probably refers to a supernatural conviction that God will reveal his power or mercy in a special way, in a special instance. So let's just kind of maybe bring it down. Like maybe, maybe somebody's got a loved one or a child that's wayward. And they're in a Bible study with a dear brother or sister, and a, a mom's child is away from the Lord. And this other dear sister just comes alongside that parent whose child is wayward, And just stakes themselves next to that person and says, you know what? I just I'm I'm gonna believe with you that God will save your wayward son. And this person is just, you know, like stirring up optimism and confidence and faith in God as they stake themselves next to that person and then let's pray together and believe that God will do this. And I mean the church should be full of that type of Of conversation, right? And I think uh, at times God gives special measures of faith uh, for those type of things to happen. And I think that that is what is going on here, as Paul talks about it in the Corinthian church. Then the gifts of healing. Again, I think this is self-explanatory. Paul is speaking here about a gift in the Corinthian church and in the church whereby God heals a person of sickness, physical, emotional, spiritual. I think there is is clearly we see in the New Testament a cluster of this gift that surrounded the ministry of the apostles that we do not see since then. So remember we talked about last week a little bit about one of the arguments for cessationism or the theological position that some of the gifts have ceased is people that hold that perspective say that the gifts of the Holy Spirit, particularly the more miraculous ones like miracles and gifts of healing and maybe tongues and prophecy were temporary gifts that were particularly um, given through the hands and ministry of the apostles to validate or authenticate their apostleship or as the, you know, the ones that are authorized to be Jesus' messengers in a one-time redemptive historical sense and write the New Testament. And they would argue that we don't see gifts like we saw through the hands of the apostles in the New Testament Um, and so therefore they've ceased. And I think that is, it is true to say clearly that there was a a very dense cluster of miraculous gifts of healing and miracles through the hands of the apostles. But that doesn't necessarily mean that God is not doing miracles and and healing. Do you you understand kind of the difference there? Um, And so I think we have to admit, even if we as Christians look at the Bible and say, no, I think that God still heals and God still does miracles, I think we need to admit that God... Did particularly um, uh, 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 numerous miracles through the hands of the apostles in the New Testament. Now, here's what I find sort of interesting: is that you take a brother that believes that the gifts of healing, as they sort of are, you know, uh, displayed in the New Testament, and you take a brother that believes that they have ceased, and then you take somebody that believes that they are still very much in operation. And those two guys have a friend that has cancer. <laughs> Even the guy that believes that the gift of healing has ceased, I find if he's a biblical Christian, is going to pray very often just like the guy that believes that the gifts have continued. And so I think it's kind of a little bit of a theological argument that kind of gets lost in the clouds. I find, and so if you're a cessationist in here tonight, I, you know... I want to just kind of say that I I think that um, you would pray the same way. In in a sense, I think most cessationists would believe that God still heals. Now, does he heal quite as frequently as he did in the New Testament times? Well, probably not. I think probably definitely not. But I think we all still believe that he heals. In fact, in James chapter 5, we have this admonition in the church that we are to pray. So James chapter five, for healing, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let him pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of the faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Now, again, we don't have time to exegete that verse, but I don't think that's a promise that every time we pray for a sick person that they're necessarily, God is obligated to heal them. But I think that is an exhortation that Christians, even those that believe the gifts have ceased, really uh, uh, adhere to and to pray for God to heal. Um, and then I think one little last thing that we want to say about the gift of healing is, is that I think sometimes Christians overreach. And I think we need to understand how uh, the, the relationship between physical healing and the atonement. And you have a lot of Christians that will say, well, You know, the Bible talks about how uh, by his stripes we are healed. And many uh, really ultra sort of word of faith, Pentecostal type people will sort of claim that as a promise that God is obligated to heal us all in this life. And I think that argument really falls apart when you realize that what's going on there in the promise of healing is more than just sort of temporal physical healing. I think what's spoken of there is really healing, eternal healing, First of all, healing between you and God, our sin is atoned for, and then ultimately it's speaking of the resurrected body, that we will be healed, we will be resurrected like Jesus and have a glorious body like Him, and we will be with Him forever and ever. Now, as a display of His mercy and power and love, God does at times, I do believe, heal in this life. But even somebody that has been healed miraculously of cancer will eventually die. So do you see kind of the faultiness of, of the of the kind of the, the ultra here and now view of healing? Is that ultimately uh, we we all do die of something that we're not healed from, but then ultimately even that death ushers us into the ultimate healing, which is to be with the Lord forever. Okay, flip the page. Working of miracles. This covers all other kinds of supernatural acts, including healing. Um, I think it's pretty self-explanatory. Uh, we would see, you know. Dead people raised, we would see, certainly we've seen miracles in the Bible, um, uh, and, and, and uh, various, this is one in particular that cessationists would believe that, you know, God, God just doesn't seem to be working in that way. So if you um, are somebody that believes the gifts have continued, and you have been frustrated with maybe somebody that you know that thinks that the gifts have ceased, realize that a person that believes that the gifts have ceased isn't saying that God can't do miracles anymore, but that he just generally doesn't seem to be working that way as he did in the New Testament. And I think that's a legitimate argument. Um, I think that we certainly see less than God did in the New Testament, but that doesn't mean that he's not doing any miracles at all today, at all. So I think, I'm, again, I'm just advocating for a little bit of grace between the two different opinions. Okay, then prophecy, and um, we'll get into tongues here in a second. These are ones that are a little bit harder, to, more controversial, more, more difficult to understand what Paul meant. So there are three, uh, there are multiple views of this gift. Three of them are, is that the gift of prophecy is the ability to speak the very words of God. And then there are sort of two different species of this particular view. Um, Some people think that uh, this, that prophecy is speaking the very words of God, and that continues today, and they are heretics okay? they, are, they believe that apostles have continued, and they believe some of them claim themselves to be apostles, and they, they think that a prophet today would speak the very words of god they 're dead wrong they just don 't have time to elaborate, but they 're wrong. Then there is another sort of grouping of this first view is that um, these are cessationists that would believe that, uh, remember when we talked last week about how in Ephesians 2 verse 20 that Paul groups apostles and prophets together? And one of the main arguments of cessationism is that apostles and prophets were this sort of co-group of people, the the apostles were the twelve, but the prophets were the sort of helpers of the apostles. And the argument of cessationism goes is that apostles and prophets are no longer in function because all of the apostles are dead and sort of their their helpers, the prophets, are, are passed away too. And the prophets in the New Testament had the same authority to speak the very words of God and explain scripture like the prophets of the Old Testament did. And so they would believe that when Paul speaks of prophecy, he's speaking about this sort of word of God speech, but that is no longer in operation. So does that make sense? There's actually two different types of the first view here. Those that think that it's still in function today, and it's the very word of God that's clearly false. And then there are those that think, well, yes, the prophets mentioned in the New Testament are like the prophets of the Old Testament, but they're all dead. The second view would be, um, others would hold it as speech that reports Something that God has spontaneously brought to mind that is particularly poignant, powerful, or clarifying. It's not so much foretelling, like the future, but rather forthtelling God's truth, and is mere human words and thus must be evaluated and weighed. Thus, it is unlike Old Testament prophecy and does not hold the same authority as Scripture and is subordinate to evaluation of leadership. So, people that would believe that, and this is probably most, this is probably the majority view of those in the continuationist camp, they're they're saying Old Testament prophecy is, there's a direct relationship between that and the apostles. Okay, so Old Testament prophets and prophecy, this is became the written word of God. And then the apostles, through their hand came the New Testament, and this particular view of prophecy is saying that what Paul is speaking about when he uses the word prophecy in the New Testament is not equivalent to Old Testament. It is subordinate to the Word of God. It's subordinate to the apostles. In fact, it's even subordinate to the leadership of the church because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 verse 29 that when the prophet speaks in the gathered assembly, that the leadership should weigh what is said. And so this is more than just everyday speech, but it's less than the word of God because it's mere human words that God is just working through in a particularly powerful way. Does that make sense? And then the third view is that um, it sees it as speech that is more general and normative and would include kind of just, you know, Types of speech such as preaching and teaching, and I think that kind of lowers it even more, um, in a sense. Um, but although, actually, I, I, actually, I would say that um, even in the New Testament, you would see preaching and teaching really even being above prophecy in some ways. So the, I think probably the second view is 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 closest to. This is a notoriously difficult gift to define. But I think uh, the second view probably is where I would stand on that. Gordon Fee, again, this New Testament scholar, says it is spontaneous, spirit-inspired, intelligible messages, orally delivered in the gathered assembly intended for the edification or encouragement of the people. And again, it zeroes in on bringing God's word and God's truth to bear in the life of the local church in a powerful way. Okay, a couple more gifts and then we'll stop for questions. Distinguishing between spirits. Um, so this either refers to the testing of spirits to see whether they are of God, like in 1 John 4.1, or the ability to weigh carefully what is said in gathered worship, as in 1 Corinthians 14.29. The testing of spirits to say whether they are of God is a little bit more um, uh, irregular, and then just the general wisdom to weigh carefully prophetic speech um, is another option. Um, I think probably it could be referring to both. Now, we often use the term discernment, like that person really is discerning or wise, to describe someone who has general sense or wisdom. This is is probably due to just general spiritual maturity rather than a specific spiritual gift, which I think Paul has in mind here. So this doesn't just mean, because maybe some of your Bibles say discernment. I think it's a little bit more than just sort of general wisdom. Um, I think it's an ability to sort of weigh with a particular wisdom of God what's going on in the life of a church or in the life of, of or maybe a prophetic word that is spoken. Okay, then tongues, an interpretation of tongues. What are tongues? Tongues are spirit-inspired utterances of a language unknown to the speaker, usually directed to God. In Acts chapter 2, they had an evangelistic use in that they were known human languages that were unknown to the speaker, but were known to many people that were gathered there for the the Feast of Pentecost. Um, Then, as we talked about last week, when somebody asked, I think it was Brian Womack asked about, whether or not um, in 1 Corinthians, uh, whether or not those tongues are the same as the tongues in Acts, are they heavenly languages, or... Known human languages—that's up for debate. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, many people see in First Corinthians 12 through 14 a broader use for tongues. So, what's going on in the Book of Acts, especially in Acts 2, is it has an evangelistic uh, purpose. So, the 120 that are gathered there on the Day of Pentecost all speak in other known human languages, telling the mysteries and beauty of God, and. It was heard and understood by all of these people that were there, and it became a sign to them, right? An evangelistic sign. In 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, many people see that Paul hints at a broader purpose for tongues beyond just evangelism to being of personal edification for prayer and the building up. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 14, he speaks about how if I pray in a tongue... And it's unknown to those around me. I'm only building myself up. And people have inferred from that that Paul is saying that there's other uses to that particular type of tongue that he mentions in 1 Corinthians 14 than just the evangelistic, linguistic purpose of Acts chapter 2. Does that that make sense? And then um, uh, one other thing that we want to say about tongues is that uh, many people maybe because they've seen it done this way, and I think incorrectly and unbiblically, it is not sort of the speaker losing control uh, or a trance-like speaking. The type of tongues that are spoken of in the Bible are certainly under the control of the speaker, and in fact, or Paul says should be done in great order to where only two or three should speak, and People can start and stop and, and, and are completely aware of themselves and in control of all of their faculties. Now, that may be very different from what maybe you've experienced in some of your settings, but whatever was going on there was certainly not what Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. And then the interpretation of tongues, which I think is just pretty straightforward. It's just the ability to interpret what the tongue speaker has said for the benefit of, of the church. And I think the fact that Paul mentions the interpretation of tongues in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 is a a bit of an argument for tongues in that context being potentially not known human languages like they were in Acts chapter 2. It's not an airtight argument, but people have argued that um, what would be the purpose of, like, let's say you have all of these people that are gathered together in Corinth. And they all speak Greek. Why would Paul? Why would the Why would the tongue that Paul is speaking there, if they're speaking like I know Spanish wasn't around then, but let's just say, why would if if the tongue speaker got up and spoke Spanish, um, uh, you know, why would they need to interpret? It, it seems to sort of push towards this idea that maybe these this tongue is not evangelistically. Um, useful in that moment, but to be a kind of, of encouragement for the church. So again, that's up for debate, um, but it's just the ability to interpret what the tongue speaker has said. Okay, so let's just do three questions, and then we'll open it up for your questions. Are the tongues mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 known heavenly languages, or known, known human languages, or heavenly languages? We talked about this a little last week. I don't think that you can really clearly nail this down biblically. Um, I think that there are good arguments on either side. Uh, an argument that they are heavenly languages would be 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1, where Paul says that, um, in 1 Corinthians 13, that if I speak in the tongues of men... And of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And people that believe that the tongues in 1 Corinthians that are spoken of are not human known languages, but heavenly languages point to that and say, see, clearly here's Paul talking about the tongues of angels. Well, I think that could be the case. But cessationists or people that don't believe that these tongues are heavenly languages are saying, no, Paul is just speaking sort of categorically there. He's just sort of saying, I mean, even if they're, even if they're this, you know, rather than saying something that they actually are. So, um, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what Paul is saying there. Someday, maybe I will ask him. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 10 through 11 um, another argument that they would be heavenly language languages is in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 10 through 11, Paul says, there are doubtly, doubtless many different languages in the world and none is without meaning, meaning, but if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. Well, this is a bit of a complex argument. We're jumping right in the middle of that chapter, but the inference there by people who think that it's a heavenly language is that Paul is using known languages as an example um, to sort of make the point that he's making about heavenly languages that, hey, nobody knows this, knows this just like they wouldn't know a known human language. Again, that's a more complex argument. Um, the point I'm making is, is that uh, there's really no airtight biblical argument for whether or not these are known human languages or uh, heavenly languages. And people um, in, that are very, very faithful Uh, That agree on just about everything else biblically disagree on this. Um, So where do I stand on the cessationist, continuationist view? Not that it's that important, like my views are important, but I know many of you are probably wondering that, and some of you have asked me, and just in the interest of being a faithful pastor, I thought I should just sort of let you know where I stand on that so that you're not kind of wondering. And I know some of you wanted to ask, but you didn't want to put me on the spot, so I'm just going to tell you. I would classify myself as a continuationist with qualifications and reservations. How about that? (laughs) I am a continuationist with qualifications and reservations. My qualifications are that clearly the gift of apostle, I believe, has ceased. Okay, that's one qualification. Another qualification I would have is that clearly I do not think that the gifts are in operation to quite the degree that they seem to be in operation in the New Testament. Now, we could spend a lot of time surmising why that may be. Maybe God had a particular purpose for uh, redemption and the unfolding plan of redemption in the New Testament that He wanted to pour out His Spirit in a greater measure. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe it's the carnality of the like my soul and the American church, and maybe God does move in more miraculous ways in other parts of the world that are less materialistic and less carnal and more hungry for and more desperate for God to move. That's 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 a possibility. but I want to say that I think clearly, empirically, that it seems to be that, at least in our context, it doesn't happen quite like the way it did in the New Testament. And I would want to long for God to move in, in greater ways, in every way. And then, so those are my qualifications. My reservations would be that much of what I have experienced myself in charismatic and Pentecostal circles, and I say this with every bit of generosity, and I say this as somebody who wants and desires all of the power of God and the gifts of God to be brought to bear on my life and my church and my country and everything about what we do. Much of what I have seen, if not the vast majority of what I have seen, that kind of fly under the label of the gifts of the Holy Spirit in earnest, sincere, Jesus-loving Pentecostal circles that I have been, has been, in, in some cases, woefully unbiblical, and in other cases, just kind of sincerely misguided. And so I, I'm, I'm cautious about just our collective cultural understanding of this, and that causes me to be very uh, gracious and slow to make pronouncements about these things that I think we have, quite frankly, some limited understanding of. Does, does that make sense? So that's my, that's my continuationism with qualification and some reservation of how I see it worked out in, in our culture. Um, now, that qualification and reservation does not apply for my desire for, for all of God in all of me, in all of God and all of this church. But it's, it's, it's a bit of humility realizing that, um, that these are difficult things to think through. Which then leads me to the third question there. Well, should Christians pursue spiritual gifts today? If so, how? And I think both the continuationists and the cessationists can and in fact should answer this, yes, yes even if you believe maybe like tongues has passed away or a prophecy has passed away, yes, I think that uh, Christians should pursue gifts today, even if you believe some of them have ceased. In fact, the Bible says that we should earnestly desire spiritual gifts. And so how should we do that, though, is the question. I don't think that it should be a sort of isolated, personal, mysterious kind of strange, uh, you know, solely for our edification pursuit, but that it should be done in the context of the rest of the Christian life. It should be done with an open Bible. Read God's Spirit is not at odds with God's Word. A church that is doctrine-pursuing, it, it that doesn't mean it's mutually exclusive with the church that should want all of God's Spirit. And so it should be done with an open Bible. It should be done in the context of prayer like just as simple as asking God, God, if you have gifts and abilities for me to use for the sake of my church and i have not like operating in them or I haven't developed them yet, would you give them to me? I think it just needs to be that simple. And then in the context of community, that we would discover our gifts together as people um, and learn from one another. And get feedback from one another uh, where we are gifted and where God seems to be using us. And we all sort of have blind spots to maybe how God is using us. And so I I think that a good, healthy local church should be a kind of echo chamber of encouragement where we are calling gifts out of one another. So we should have sort of our head on a swivel. We were looking around to people in the church that seem to be doing you know, good things and encouraging things, and we should call that out of each other, like, hey, brother, you're really, man, I'm just blessed by the way you were doing that, or you were serving, or you were leading, or you were administrating, or you were just displayed mercy, and and and, and like, like, we should fan that into flame as we become a kind of echo chamber of encouragement to help one another be spurred on to love and good deeds and the cultivation of spiritual gifts. So I want to I want to, and I'll shut up here in a second, and we'll open up for questions. I want to dispel this dichotomy that seems to be people that are doctrinal and love the truth of God's word. Sometimes it seems like they're pitted against people that want the spirit of God to flow, right? I just think that is an unnecessary dichotomy. I think that both... We need both, the Word and the Spirit. The Spirit wrote the Word. And when the Word is rightly understood, it warms the heart. In fact, Jonathan Edwards, the great American, really the the one American Puritan who was the greatest theological mind in the history of America in the 1700s, wrote a book called Religious Affections, where he talked about how the truth of God's word should warm our hearts and fan into flame our earnest pursuit and desire of all that God's, God has for us. And he says that the light of God's word should lead to the heat of our pursuit of God. And I think that those two things go together. Okay, I'll shut up. Questions? Bob, we got, we got uh, microphones coming. Uh, Not so much a question as a statement is not taking into account 1 Corinthians and all what he says, but actual biblical uh, examples of tongues. There was three things always present, and that was a speaker speaking in an unknown or non-native language Mm -hmm. to him, Mm -hmm. a translator, Mm -hmm. and an unsaved person. Now, the translator and the unsaved person many times are in fact the same. But those three things were always present in biblical tongues. Yeah. Well, I think you're right, but I will say that Paul seems to allude to the possibility that in gathered worship, he's distinguishing between public tongue. Well, let me say that um, many people see a distinction in 1 Corinthians 14 verse 4 in particular, between a public and a private tongue. And in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 4, he says, the one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. And then he goes on to say that if a tongue is spoken in the public gathering, is spoken in that public gathering, it needs to be, um, it needs to be interpreted. And so from that, I would agree with everything you say. I would just want to say that there are many Christians who would also believe that there's a certain private use to this spiritual gift of tongues. So, yeah, good point. Did somebody down here? Brooks had a question, right? Right, right here, Robert.
2: Um, I have two questions. First was on when you were speaking about faith, and you mm-hmm. said kind of standing by somebody and saying God will do this. I guess I kind of want some clarity on believing that he will versus he can. Yeah. Because to me, to stand beside someone who's suffering and just to say, I believe yeah. God will heal your child. Yeah. And then that child dies. Yeah. And yeah. it's, well, what else do you believe that's not true? Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah.
1: No, I, yeah. I completely understand what you're saying. And so I would say that, um, I would want to use that word that God can. Kind of like, you know, Hebrews 11, faith is evidence of things hoped for. And so, yeah, as we exercise faith, we're going to always submit what we believe God may be doing underneath his sovereign will. And I think part of the danger of many people in the word of faith movement is that they will... They wrongly, heretically interpret faith as something that, like, obligates God to move. And that produces great discouragement and disillusionment um, as people's hearts are just wrecked. And so I I, want to say that I think, yeah, our language should be a little bit more nuanced. I think it's coming along saying not, we want to know what God will do, but God can do this, and I'm going to stake myself to you. And... Uh, and pray that God would even use my faith to be the means by which he may answer this prayer.
2: So how would you explain, um, say that person is a very charismatic person, Mm -hmm. Psalm 91, that seems to promise if you are a child of God, you will not have any physical harm.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that's where you have to let the Bible interpret the Bible. And if Psalm 91 was the only thing in the scriptures... That had to speak to our physical protection, then I would say that we would, that would be a, that's what we should surmise from that. But, but this, that's, a, that's a, we need to think about the genre of literature of the Psalms, of the songs. That's a confession uh, of, of the psalmist there, uh, you know, just projecting God's power and who he is. It's not a promise that this is what God is obligated to do and then we let the whole bible speak to these all of these issues and from that we develop that's where that's where systematic theology is a helpful discipline the bible as a whole is one unified message and it, it gives us a full orb. And when we read Psalm 91, that should stir faith in us. That should, should stir uh, confidence in us. But we need to read Psalm 91 that talks about how God will shelter us. And nothing, you know, a thousand will fall at our right, ten thousand. But then we need to also read that in context with Hebrews 11. that speaks about those that, um, who were sought in half. That were not, you know, that the world was not worthy of them. And so we put those together. And we develop a healthy whole Bible theology of how God of how God works.
2: Oh. Okay, last question. Yes, no. Um, Go
1: ahead. With the
2: healing, I, I would say that I don't know any Christian that doesn't believe that God can heal someone today. Yeah. I guess what I'm more um, skeptical of are the people that claim to be healers, yeah. like hands laying. They have been given a special gift from God to specifically be able to heal.
1: Yeah, yeah. so I think that they don't have that. In fact, I think there's even a key, a clue for us in the language that Paul gives there. He says in verse, chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, um, verse 9, another gifts of healing by the one spirit. So I think that the emphasis is there is not on the person through whom is being used by God to bring about, but... To another, like the, what the gift is, is the healing. So it's various types of healings. Not, not, it's not the person who has this gift. But the gift is, like you will be given the gift of healing. Meaning God's going to heal you of the disease. <laughs> Does that make sense? Not you have the gift of healing. But you have been given healing by God. Does that make sense? So yeah, run away from people that say that they are um, like a faith healer. Um, They usually call themselves apostles, and they conveniently ask for your Social Security check and retirement check um, so that they can buy their $68 million jets. And they oftentimes aptly are named Dollar. (laughs) As in Creflo Dollar. A false prophet, false teacher. Lots of them on Christian TV. Yeah. Jared. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Wait on the mic. We're recording it. Somebody got a mic?
0: Well, I already had John on the
1: Oh, Oh, I'm sorry. John. Okay. You, you, so, sorry. Yeah, Give my attention.
3: John. Just kind of follow on to that. So yeah. uh, I think everybody, most people know me. I, I'm a doctor. Uh, I do not have the gift of healing. Yeah. Uh, I wish I would... That I had that. I wish I could go in Martin Army Hospital or St. Francis or anywhere else and just you know clear the hospital yeah. out. Yeah, uh, And I invite anybody that has that gift to please go to the
0: hospital. <laughs> yeah. and, Amen. And clear the hospital out. I Amen. Mean, I, you
3: know, don't do it in some corner somewhere when there's hospitals full of sick people that Amen, really genuinely bro. need somebody to heal them. On the other hand, I will say that uh, with it, with no intervention on my part or as far as I can tell, anybody else's. I have seen patients who had stage four cancer, not often. Mm-hmm. I've seen a couple of people who their cancer uh, went away. I can think of one like, she's dead now. Everybody, mm-hmm. you know, as it is appointed unto men, wants yep. to die, but after this, the judgment. Uh, everybody goes. But mm-hmm. I have seen people that, as far as I could tell, it was a miraculous healing, yep. you know. Did Amen. I have anything to do with it? No, I did not. Amen. I was just an observer and praise God for it and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I, think, I genuinely believe that God heals people. Would I ever tell somebody that God is going to heal their child? I've never done that b- before, and I'd feel very, very nervous about uttering those words mm-hmm. for the very reason that you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. But uh, if I were brave enough to say something like that, I'd probably have to add a caveat, which is, But they will die later Mm -hmm. because everybody's going to leave this planet. And, I mean, in a sense, they die. Jesus said that whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. And that is the sense that God's talking about in that we have eternal life in him. And we will never die. Our bodies will die. But then we... Live on. In fact, in the New Testament, it's hard. It is possible, but it's difficult to find a place where the apostles talk about people dying. They basically say they fell asleep Mm -hmm. or something. And I think they use that terminology because of what Jesus actually said that Mm -hmm. that we will never die, Mm -hmm. and that is the mindset that Christians, I think, should have. And I won't. I, I don't think it's wrong to pray for healing. But it is not God not being faithful to us Amen. when we die.
1: Amen. Amen. That's a great point, John. That is a great point. And I think Paul makes that very point in, you know, in Second Corinthians. We're talking about this. God has given this to keep me humble, to bring glory to his name. Romans 8, uh, we suffer so that the surpassing worth might be revealed in us. Um, yeah, praise God.
3: Yeah, great point, John. Jared. Um, you touched on it a little bit about the culture of the Corinthian church, mm-hmm. and this this chapter has always been hard for me as a as an American Christian mm-hmm. and, and Western, because any time, for me, any time I see spiritual gift, I'm thinking mystical-type mm-hmm. atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Is there any literature or any type of history that we can go back and see why Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians pertaining to this? What were they practicing and, and what were they doing? Because, I mean, surely Paul didn't just pop up on the scene and say, let me tell you about spiritual gifts now. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, yeah, I think just a good, and I can, we can recommend um, some good commentaries for you on 1 Corinthians. Um, we've got a couple in my office that you're welcome to borrow. Um, uh, Logan could get you a couple. He's got a real good handle on commentaries. But what's going on in the Corinthian church is it was a very carnal, very gifted group of people. And in the first and second chapter of First Corinthians, Paul is encouraging the church about how gifted they are, but really how puffed up and conceited they were. And that God had obviously poured out His Spirit on this church in a great way. Paul says in the first chapter that they are not lacking in any spiritual gift, um, but the exercise of their spiritual gift was very spiritual gifts was very selfish and self-absorbed, and in many ways very carnal. And so he is in the culture in Corinth. It's a huge metropolitan area of trade and commerce and wisdom and knowledge and kind of a cutting-edge cultural town. So it was like a like a Vegas or a you know a New York or just kind of this crossroads where a, a whole lot of carnality would come through. And God was using this church in very clear ways to propel the gospel in the Roman Empire. Um, but they. But they were using these gifts wrongly. And I think the reason why, um, one of the reasons why the Corinthian church is like it is, is because God is wanting to showcase them as a church that needs great instruction. Um, So to answer your question, I think uh, there's just really helpful commentaries on Colossians, uh, first Corinthians, but I would just recommend to everybody the vast majority of Christians can get what they need as far as context and, and uh, on a city or a letter like First Corinthians by just the ESV study Bible. It is an invaluable resource. I mean, Robert and I were talking about it today. That is just one of the mo- most, it, it is the best study Bible out there. It's just excellent. And we sell them in the resource room, you can, I don't know if we have any there now, but we're going to stock up with them, but the ESV study Bible, if you just read the introductory notes to First Corinthians, you'll have a real good handle on what's going on in Corinth in the first century. Um, yeah, good question. Somebody, I can't see behind. Ed. Yes,
4: sir. Okay, regarding uh, like foreign missionaries and language studies, would that be considered a spiritual gift of tongues and interpretation, or is that more of a skill? Yeah,
1: I think I think it's a gift. I think some people are particularly gifted in language acquisition. Acquisition, but no, I don't think that's what's that's not what's going on. In um, now, I I think I, I mean I've heard of reports of people going to the mission field not having even studied the language, and they have an experience like happens in Acts chapter two, but that seems to be more spontaneous and miraculous, not somebody cracking away for eight hours a day, you know, learning a language. Um, but you see, I mean, that is God gifting them through just kind of ordinary grace to learn a language, but that's not what's going on in, first, in Acts. Yeah, good question. Yes, yes, Chesco.
5: Um, in the Caribbean, you do see a lot of people using, I guess, gifts mm-hmm. and kind of adding tongue and prophecy yeah. and trying to give people, I guess, knowledge. My grandfather, being a seven-day Adventist, has always told me that's the devil. Mm -hmm. Um, Where does that lie in actual gifts and just more or less someone trying? Because a lot of times it's, oh, a donation or this or that. But there are very few that will just walk up and tell you some mind-blowing things, and you're like, you don't even know me. Yeah, yeah. Is that legitimate, or is I think that... it's?
1: I think it's not. I think I think a vast majority of that type of stuff is just learned behavior. It's just people that are either earnest and thinking that's the way it should be done, or they are wolves in sheep clothing trying to, you know, fleece the sheep. Second question. Yeah,
5: real quick. Um, I know it was kind of last week talking about the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. and how it. Some people believe that it's uh, a second part.
1: Yeah, second experience. Yes.
5: Uh Um, And I'm very new at this. (laughs) Yeah, no, no, sure, Um, brother. I've always been told about like the four seeds and one that falls in stone. Could it be that the one that fell in stone wasn't touched by the Holy Spirit yet? And maybe that's why it fell in stone and grew and just fell apart.
1: Well, I think that's more in the realm of of, of, of the doctrine of salvation, what's okay. happening in salvation. So I think that um, the four soils that you see in Mark chapter 4, the stone and then the two different types of soil that seems to spring up for a while but ultimately don't take root, and then the fourth soil, which is good soil, I think that is speaking to the Spirit's work in regeneration or salvation. I think that's speaking to John chapter 3, where, where Jesus says that the Spirit blows where it wills, And that any person that is amongst God's elect in eternity past, the Spirit of God will open up their hearts and produce in them life so that they can respond to God in faith and repentance and they are saved. Um, That is salvation. And so that regenerating work of the Spirit in the fourth soil, that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I think, biblically. So you're right, Chesco. Your instincts are right. The, the, the seed that fell on the stone or the other, the second, never really had the true converting, regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in their life to baptize them into the body of Christ by making them alive and giving them the gifts of faith and repentance. So you're right on on that. Yeah. yeah. Nan's got her hand up.
4: Does this work? It
1: does. Yes.
4: I want to congratulate you by being a cautious continuationist, <laughs> and at the same time, I think I would love to see people who have seen all of the wildfire within the charismatic community forget it mm-hmm. and just open up your Bible and read your Bible. And let the Holy Spirit teach you what 1 Corinthians 13, 14 teaches you. Earnestly desire spiritual gifts. And he said, if you are praying, if you are praying in a tongue, you are speaking to God. Paul said, I would that you all prayed in tongues. But in the church, Mm -hmm. that you would speak with understanding. So just read that for yourself, number one. Number two, to the woman, to the lady, young lady down here about faith. Oh, my goodness, I've seen so many people hurt by this name it and claim it thing so may I say at almost 80 I have learned I'm still learning y'all and it's so (laughs) exciting and and what I want to say to you is faith faith in what God will do remember that Jesus it's okay to ask God whatever you want him to do remember Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane he asked three times didn't he that God would remove the cup but then what did he say Nevertheless, not my will but thine be done. If we can learn, Romans eight twenty eight that our faith is in the fact that God's going to work what? All things, come on, together, together. for good for Amen. those who love him. That's where our faith needs to lie, that we serve a good God. And regardless of how bad it looks, I've lost a child. I've walked through a lot of of difficult things. As a matter of fact, I do want to share, if I have the time, I'm glad a doctor's here. My husband was in Atlanta with um, um, encephalitis, and he had brown sequard syndrome, which he was totally paralyzed on the left side. And a friend of mine who used to be with Precept Ministries, Al Whittinghill, came and prayed for Mac. Now, he did not say, I'm coming, I have the gift of healing. He just came and prayed for Mac, and guess what, Mac got up and walked. Mm -hmm. But here's the story I want to tell you about my son, Mac too. He went into Emory with difficulty with his thyroid. And the doctors at Emory, the top doctors there in that, that field said, you have Thymoma, you have a tumor on your thyroid. We're going to follow it for two or three months. They did all the MRIs. They did the x-rays. And they said, yes, you do have it. It's probably malignant and we need to do surgery. So my son is a little, um, he, he just wants to make sure. So he said, well, I think I will go up to Sloan Kettering in New York and get a second opinion from the number one doctor in the world concerning that disease. The number one doctor in the world said, I concur with your doctor at Emory. You do have thymoma. You have a tumor on your thyroid. It shows up on all of our equipment. And you go back to Emory, have surgery. And then come back up here if it's cancer. So I began to pray. And he had a little pastor pray for him and anoint him with oil to be healed of that. I began to pray that God would remove that. Don't ask me why. I'm not that bold. But I said, I just was praying. And a friend of mine said, how are you praying for Mac? I said, I'm praying that Mac be healed. She said, how is Mac praying? I said, he's praying that he doesn't have cancer She said, that's how I'm going to pray, because that's all the faith he has. I said, well, you pray how you want to. I'm praying that he be healed. (laughs) Well, so we go in for surgery, the day of surgery, and we're all ready, and the little pastor is sitting there. I think it's the first time he ever had anointed anybody with oil and prayed for him to be healed anyway. We're sitting there, and the surgeon comes out. He is scratching his head, and there is no tumor. But now he had to have an excuse and said there must have been a shadow. Now, so I just want to say to you, God is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And I don't believe that we need less than they needed back then to carry the gospel. But we need the same power that they had then to go forth and be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, which is our purpose, and to go with the gospel we need as much power as they had back then. We don't need less, okay? The church is in a pitiful shape because I think the enemy has done a good job in, in skewing and, and um, uh, giving us false understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit. So let's be wise and just open up the Word of God, please. Okay? Thank you. Sorry to talk.
1: No, thank you. Thank you, Nan. And what, a, what an encouragement to... Be like the Bereans. Open up our Word, and let's not pit the Word against the Spirit. The Spirit wrote the Word, and so let's let's be a church that wants all that God has for us, and um, and let's let's pursue God with all that we have, and um, let's let the light of God's Word produce in us heat and passion for God. So, with that, let me pray. I know it's getting late, and we'll I'll stick around for any other questions that you may have. I am. Uh, Thank you for enduring these six weeks. It's been helpful and encouraging to me. And um, let's not just let be like water that falls off a, you know, a Labrador's back. Let's, uh, let's actually dig into this. Let's pray as, as Nana's encouraged us. And um, let's not just accumulate knowledge, but let's, let's accumulate godliness and Christ likeness and more of God so that we can be used more, more powerfully of, by Him because... There are people out there that need the Lord. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for these past six weeks and for your grace to us by your Holy Spirit that indwells all of your people, that gifts all of your people. As as Stephen started us off tonight by reading from 1 Peter chapter 4, as each of us have received a gift, let us use it. Let us cultivate it. Let us want more of you so that we can be used in greater ways and effectiveness and fruitfulness for you and your kingdom. And do this, Lord, for the glory of your name we plead with you for the salvation of souls, for the building up of your church. As we look across our land, it is easily to be discouraged. As we even look at the state of our own souls, oftentimes it's easily to be discouraged. But may we be strengthened and encouraged by Jesus' promise that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So, Lord, help us lean into these things for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, folks, we'll see you Sunday.